Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We are coming to you during the COVID-19 pandemic, each of us recording from home, and in this case, Stu is on a train. <laughs> this week, we have some industry news, including the reopening of the movies at Meadville. We'll catch up with folklorist and teaching artist Kelly Armour and share our thoughts on the feature film Uncut Gems, available on Netflix. I'm Erica Berlin, Executive Director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming. I'm Stuart Nash, cinematographer, guild member, and the director of the Greater Erie Film Office. I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. So let's start everybody with a little bit of industry news. We record a week ahead of time. So the movies at Meadville will have just reopened this past weekend. They advertised that their staff was going to be wearing masks, gloves, and cleaning the area frequently. They required that their customers wear masks when in the lobby. And then when they went into the movie, they could actually take their masks off. Um, they went with a program of family favorites that included Shrek, Harry Potter, and the Sorcerer's Stone, The Goonies, Back to the Future, and Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, which I saw six times in the theater when it came out originally in Edinburgh. Um, so I'm curious what you all think of this. And uh, for those listening, if you attended this weekend, we'd love to hear about it on our Facebook page. I'm, I'm curious about how they're doing seating in the theater. That's been a really interesting topic of conversation in almost every um, should we open movie theaters conversation. Yeah, I guess because they're in the green zone, right? In mm -hmm. the movies at Meadville. So I guess that's why you don't need the mask inside the theater, but you need it in the lobby. I'm not sure how that how that works, but uh, yeah. we're figuring it out. Another news item to update everyone on, we talked about the independent horror film The Wretched, uh, which is being released by IFC Films. Uh, in last week's episode, we covered film, but now uh, it is joined Titanic, The Sixth Sense, Avatar, and Black Panther as the only films to have topped the box office for five consecutive weekends in the past 23 years. Wow. So a little independent film, um, timed yeah. right. Uh, it was made, you know, between, <laughs> a kid loved it. Uh, <laughs> I did too, you know, he can hear us talking. He's like, yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's had a budget between two and $300,000 um, and, uh, it's earned, as of this recording, over $840,000. I would imagine by the time this episode is released, it'll be at a million dollars. And that's mostly drive-in theaters. So The Wretched. Has anybody seen The Wretched yet? Not yet. Have you? I have not seen it. I have not seen it. Kelly? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying only drive-in well, drive theaters so far. That is crazy. 
It's been, you know, one of the few films, new films out for the entire month of May, and now we're into June, and there's no competition. Well, there's a lot of horror fans out there, and some of the drive-ins or some of these smaller theaters that are opening up again, like you said, they're showing Back to the Future and Shrek, you know, classic films. I think uh, everyone's looking for new content. So those horror fans come out. And you said projected after this weekend, they'll uh, bust a million? I mean, they're making over 100,000 now each week. So yeah, I would imagine by the time this episode airs, you know, another week, they're going to they're gonna be there. Um, one last news item that's interesting as well. Uh, the Telluride Film Festival, which uh, is another one of the top film festivals in the world. This is the first major film festival in North America that has um, taken a stand and said that they are going to go forward with an in-person event in September. They're kicking off on Thursday, September 3rd. They're adding one, it's usually a three-day festival. They're adding a fourth day taking into account the social distance spacing uh, during their screenings around the same time that the Venice Film Festival and Toronto Film Festivals take place. So it'll be really interesting to see um, if the industry is starting to go in on these big gathering events. You know, interesting from a blues jazz perspective, a film grain dinner and a movie perspective. So Telluride, uh, the festival said... I'll, I'll quote here in their press release. We are not ignorant of the devastation facing the world. We feel the fear and distress too. This is why we're committed to observing all guidance as suggested by the consensus of voices of the scientific community with whom we are consulting now. This will not be a business as usual event. Things will look and feel very different. Your comfort and safety are the most important things to us. For those of you who opt not to join us, we absolutely understand and support this decision. Your reasons surely involve heightened personal health concerns, and you must do what is the very best for you. We trust and hope you'll be back with us next time. We can provide optimal conditions for the show. May that be soon. What do you guys think? This is a big festival. I got a question. So has has there been any announcement yet from um, other festivals such as TIFF or Tribeca or anything like that? Cool. Tribeca's in the spring, right? Yeah, but like how about TIFF? Has TIFF announced anything? There's just been rumors that TIFF will do some kind of a hybrid, um, but they have not said anything official yet. I think Telluride gets away with it because of their location. And I think that's what it is. And I think that they're taking uh, strategic advantage of that. And um, while I do think it's maybe a little ambitious, uh, particularly because we don't quite know everything that we don't know everything yet, um, it's a smart calculation on their part. I just wonder what they're going to do with everyone traveling to Telluride. Potentially, you know, you might have your silent spreaders. Obviously, if someone's ill, you know, they hopefully have the sense to not come. Are they going to have some kind of way of, you know, are they taking people's temperatures at the airport when they show up? Or is it a, when you're on your way into the theater, you know, are you, um, are you getting attention like that? I, I'm curious to see. Yeah, we'll find out. I mean, you know, there's been more stuff coming out that maybe it was more widespread countries like the U.S. before we officially 
new and a lot of people were commenting like yeah i got really sick at sundance well anybody that goes to sundance knows that there's like the sundance flu anyways mm-hmm. um but you know places like that like film festivals where you're traveling to kind of a smaller town which is like telluride as well yeah it can be i don't know it feels a little risky to me kelly i see yeah. you shaking your head well, too um, it's kind of staggering because i i think it's just plain old risky to go to Meadville to a movie theater, let alone get on a plane and hobnob with people all over the world. But I'm also curious how Telluride is funded. How do they, I wonder how much that plays into it. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. You think about, you know, the reason the festivals aren't happening here in Erie is that it's just too hard to know. You can't, you would have started, you needed to have started doing fundraising months ago you know when the pandemic hit you really have to do the funding finding sponsors sponsors don't want to sponsor an arts festival that they're not sure is even going to happen so all of that pre-planning all of that and it's i think uh, taking away just the uncertainty and health concerns how do you put on a festival when you can't get funding so i think that that is a huge reason that if the festivals in Erie could wait two weeks before they happen, then they probably would be say, well, let's wait and see, but they, they can't. So right. it's interesting. I wonder what Telluride, if they're totally fueled by, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It seems like Telluride is another exclusive location, like Sundance is, like these tiny towns that just flood with people for these these festivals and I just picture a lot of vacation, you know, Colorado vacation homes and people with a lot of money that come there, you know, just like Sundance. It's like a very exclusive. So, so the rich people just take their own planes to tell you ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. That that's how it speaks to me. I, I could be wrong. John, you probably know more about the that particular festival. I was going to say, Stu's usually quick on looking stuff up. I wonder if he was pulling anything up on his laptop. I've never been to Telluride. I, I really hope to get there sometime. But it is, I mean, it's, it's small-ish and exclusive-ish. The cool thing about Telluride is they don't announce their program ahead of time. So you kind of get there and you have all these new movies and it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe they're just used to the flying by the seat of your pants kind of approach. (laughs) They're like, we're going for it. Well, we'll see. Again, it'll be a nice learning experience. I know we've all, a lot of us have been to TIFF before and that's a really great fest. Being a much larger city, maybe a bit riskier. But, you know, they've got a lot of different theaters spread out. They've got some really large theaters that they show films in, so they might have an easier time social distancing, if you will, like once, you know, you might be able to get people in with a lot of space in between them in some of the TIFF theaters. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Today we are joined by Kelly Armour, who is an absolute staple in the Erie arts community, folklorist and teaching artist. She has a really, well, Kelly, I'll have you introduce yourself, but you've had a really interesting journey in your life from where you maybe started as a student to where you've, where you've got to here in Erie. So tell us, tell us who you are. Tell us about yourself. The, the quick version is I grew up in Erie, uh, grew up in Lawrence Park. I uh, was uh, studied flute and piano, classically trained. I went to college uh, and was thought I wanted to be a music major, 
but got quickly frustrated with the sort of the elitism and patriarchy that I confronted there and the fact that music making was not a joy there. It was this cutthroat competitive thing. And I kind of stumbled into some African studies classes and it completely captured my imagination. And so I finished my college doing an independent study program in Kenya and Tanzania, where I learned traditional music and lived with families, and it changed my life. It changed how I looked at art and music, and uh, I learned about American culture because I was confronted with uh, an African culture that was so different from what I'd grown up with. And I came back to Erie and uh, eventually had a career uh, that lasted about a decade as a, as a singer and storyteller and troubadour, traveling musician, and teaching artist. Um, and then I ran the education and folk art program at the Area Art Museum for uh, six, 16 years. And then as of last year, I moved the folk art program from the art museum to Area Arts and Culture. So I'm the folk art director there, which is a part-time um, consultant position. And I also do, I also am an artist in residence. So I'm a musician and a storyteller I'm a teaching artist, but I'm also a public folklorist. So you said something in your TED talk that, well, there's a few things that you said that I'm going to ask you about. One is though, you are now at Erie Arts and Culture and you've had such a wonderful experience that changed your life coming from Africa. And 10% of Erie's population is refugee. Oh, and many at of least, those at least, yeah. at least. And many of those are African refugees, if I'm if I'm right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the arts program that you've done with refugees in Erie? Yeah, I started it in 2003. Uh, it's called Old Songs Do Opportunities, and it was uh, a training program for primarily it was a training program for new Americans, but primarily it was for women and those who came uh, to resettle as former refugees. And it trained them to use their traditional songs, their traditional children's songs in American child cares. And also kind of broadly helped them figure out how to talk about themselves and their culture. Uh, it was over 10, 12 year period of, of that program. We trained 63 women and two men uh, most of them were able to gain some sort of employment as a result. And we've now are, have this incredible collection of children's songs from all over the world. And there's something like we've collected something close to close to a hundred different songs from them through the process. So that so was is that heck of a world music curriculum for, for, yes. for preschoolers. Yeah. So, so now that those songs exist, what, where are they? What are they doing? Well, I think some of the, some of the teachers um, are still using them. Uh, some of the artists that I've worked with and this and the participants in the program, the new Americans, um, they've used them. Uh, they, they surface. I, and some of the programs that I do in the community now with new American artists, we draw from that repertoire on a regular basis. So, and my hope is we'll be able to revive the program at some point in the, in the future. I know that there's plenty more new Americans who would love to do that training and go through that process. So, cause we need them, we need them as teachers. So what else is Erie Arts and Culture doing 
uh, that you're that you're spearheading? So there's a project. We got a, a wonderful grant from the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art, and this was a project where uh, we are taking artists who are from Muslim majority countries who now live in Erie and helping them get better at sharing their art with the broad public. So I have been working with uh, about 12 artists and they come from Syria and Iraq and Palestine, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Sudan, um, and Turkey. And they, uh, and so we envisioned them working with high school students uh, and we did a, a project with the um, alternative education program at the Erie Public Schools, the high school students, where artists came in and told their story over and over again to different small groups of students. Um, so they got better at telling their stories and dem doing short demonstrations. And then we had a pretty large artist in residency project with McDowell High School, where we're working with film and journalism students. So, yes. Well, I was going to say the the so the new program that you're working on with film and journalism students is with Stephanie Weiss, who's a former board member of the Film Society. So tell us about that project. It's been just a fascinating journey. Uh, the timing was really perfect. Uh, we were planning on bringing all the artists into the school to work with, with Stephanie's students in the fourth quarter, which started right at the end of March. That was pretty much when everything got closed. A couple of weeks after that, they were given the directive that they, can, they pivot to online. And because we had support from the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts and the Doris Duke Foundation, we, were, we had the funding. So I called up all of the artists and I said, you know how I said we would go visit these students and they would film you and you would do demonstrations. And well, how about we do it all online? And every <laughs> single one of them, they were so enthusiastic. It was truly a shot in the arm just to, that they were saying, yes, we'll do this. And how are we going to do this? I said, well, I don't know. We'll figure it out together. So um, <laughs> it has been this really interesting exercise in creating authentic experience without any face-to-face -face contact. And it's been successful. Um, right now, one thing that's different is um, the artists actually had to learn to take footage of themselves because the students couldn't do it. So we, there was a big component of the online program was basically getting online and get and ordering tripods for all of their phones and uh, smartphones that they could capture video of themselves and teaching them a little bit about, you know, avoiding the common pitfalls of bad videos, like that, no, don't be backlit, uh, always keep the film horizontal, not vertical, uh, and, and experiment with getting different angles, doing the same thing, but with, from a different, from a different angle um, or, uh, or a wide shot as opposed to a close-up. So, uh, and that in and of itself has really, the artists have said that has changed their way of thinking about who they are as artists. They had never really thought about that before. Another thing that's uh, really striking is well, the students did research on the artists while the artists were getting footage of themselves. And then we came together where students were able to interview the artists on Zoom. And it was one of the most intimate experiences that I've had during this pandemic. I wasn't yeah. expecting it to be so intimate, but it was. Uh, 
part of it was that we're all sitting in our own houses. And so there's a sense of being comfortable in our own spaces. Uh, another is that had the artist been in a school setting, you know, there's plenty of distractions when you're at home, but there are a different set of distractions. When you're in school, there's tons of distractions, students right. coming and going, the bell rings, there's some big announcement <laughs> in the middle of everything. Uh, and there's this very strict schedule. And, um, and then the artist sort of had a huge camera pointed right at them. Uh, but when we're all on Zoom, none of that is there. And really amazing conversations happen mm -hmm. between the students and the artists. Yeah. It's, to me, it seems like Zoom is kind of the great equalizer. You know, everyone's in their spaces and everyone feels more um, at the same level, you know, more like friends. And I think maybe for colleagues too, who work together, you know, and are working home from whatever business they're in, but uh, it's helping us right now record this, this podcast, um, being able to see each other. That's wonderful. Yeah, it seems like uh, students, I, I really get your point of, you know, kids feeling a lot more relaxed and therefore more free to ask questions and maybe respond um, without feeling even judged by their classmates, which I, I think that that can be an issue with with that age group. So that's great. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to hear about that. Um, McDowell grad kind of wished that I got to do something like that when I was back in school. Um, I rewatched your Ted talk again, as you, as you know, and you said something that really struck me and I wanted to ask you a different version of that question. You said that you have your history, you know, you have a history in music and children's songs and singing to, to babies. Uh, in the mu music that you're creating in your program. And you make a point that if you say you drive a car, no one expects you to be a NASCAR driver. But if you say you're a singer, people expect you to be good. Like you can't sing off key. You can't, you know, but if you, but if you proclaim like I am a singer, do it right or you're going to be ridiculed. And um, I thought to myself, well, geez, that, that is completely applicable when you think about filmmaking. So you say, I'm a filmmaker, and what does that really mean? Right, there's this presumption that you have to be a professional to be able to call yourself that. I think, and people struggle with that with, with being an artist. They say, well, if I say I'm an artist, people think that I, I have to be promoting myself and I have to be in museums and galleries, and that isn't, and that's really a shame. I, I think that the ability to, there's lots of reasons to make art, just like there's lots of reasons to sing. And that professional performance component is only one small sliver of the bigger picture. That the performance is really something, is a product of modernity and of, of, of a cash economy and all this uh, yeah. and our consumptive economy as well. Like that's, mm -hmm. uh, but people have been singing since humanity began, we've been singing. It's one of the oldest forms of communication and you, they never sang for a paycheck. They sang for community. They sang to calm people down. They sang to energize people. They sang to help people work together and keep rhythm together. Uh, you sang to remember your history. You sang to teach your young. You sang through all of that. So, um, and that the idea that you would judge in a consumer culture where performance is kind of the way that we judge artists, then it's, you're asking people to be these 
technological, like that they've got the technique of singing down, right? That they can do the fireworks with their voice. They can wow people with their, with their vocal prowess. But then we sort of expect those divas to be uh, actually jerks. <laughs> um, so, uh, because if you're that good, then you have to be really proud and you have to be self-involved and narcissistic. And whereas in a traditional culture, an artist is not judged by their technique technical ability that they're really judged by their moral leadership and that singing in tune is not the most important thing. Do they have the respect of their community? I imagine similar to if you convey the feelings and emotions you're trying to to invoke in your audience, then that's the point of being a filmmaker. It's a more modern version using technology or creating images, you know, moving images, and you're delivering those in different ways. Of course, now digitally, it's it's completely accessible. Anyone could make a film. John, you know the name of this filmmaker, but the guy that made Tangerine, that was all on his iPhone, but he told an incredible story. So it's so accessible for people. And just like, you know, a driver <laughs> who's not a NASCAR driver, uh, I, I think that... Um, I think that filmmakers can be, uh, they don't have to be professional anymore. They don't have to make, you know, the next Marvel movie. They can make something on their phone and they're doing that. I mean, look at TikTok. People are making their own music videos every day. And I would say, I mean, this is almost a question for, for John. I mean, Kelly, you're welcome to respond. But I think part of what we hope, you know, with the Film Society is, what does it mean to be a filmmaker and how do you encourage filmmaking? Like what are the things that would help you feel more confident as a filmmaker? What are the skills that you need? What are the, what's the encouragement, the support? Like what do you need to be a filmmaker? Well, I think, and Kelly definitely can respond to this as a teaching artist. I mean, we encounter this all the time, right? It's, um, you know, you just uh, need to give another person the confidence and maybe some of the tools and basics that hey, you can do this, you know, and um, using your voice and that everybody has a story to tell in their own way. I think just to comment on, and Sean Baker, by the way, is the Thank director you. of Thank Tangerine. You. And I know Stu wanted to jump in here too. I saw his hand pop up. But um, yeah, Kelly, do you think part of it is not to do the blame social media and the internet thing, but it kind of feels like, you know, with social media, we only put our one version of ourself out there and we're afraid of, you know, failure, but really, you know, that's where you learn. And maybe with artists, you know, social media is uh, maybe bad for putting your experimentation uh, and your process out there. And it's more about just, um, you know, the end perfection. And that's really all that you share with people as far as an artist on, on social media. What do you think about that? Well, social media, hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's huge. You've got, it's, it is truly a blessing and a curse. It is, it has developed this incredible visual literacy for people, but it also is this kind of demon in terms of how young people are trying to figure out how to present themselves. Like what is their public persona in a way that I never had to think about that. I never had to think about that as a kid. Uh, and there's, I, I think, but I think it is incredibly valuable in terms of just the fact that we're all walking around with this incredible technology that we can be visual storytellers and we, it is about storytelling and what, what kind of story do you want to tell? 
is I think where you have to start with, with any, any young person, not do you want to be famous, <laughs> which is only going to end in just is not a good place to start. So uh, I want, this is the story I want to tell and how am I going to tell it? And this is the, the question that I keep coming back to with the artists I'm working with now on this project. What, what is your story? What story do you want to tell? Because they've never had to think about take, capturing video of themselves before. Uh, and, that, and they've never thought about how a film might be edited together. They've not been conscious of that. And so this, this online project with McDowell has really helped them think about those things. Expand on that a little bit, because that was what my question was going to be. Um, what are you guys doing? Like, what are their stories they're telling? Well, it's all over the map. I mean, it's for some of them, it's it's uh, like for the African clothing designer. He's got one video around making masks, which is a way that he is like serving as a tailor to the community. Uh, another is about how he measures people. Another is how he cuts fabric. So he, he stayed away from his biographical details. Uh, and it's all about how do you do this craft. For the henna artists, they have videos on showing how they take the henna powder and create the paste and apply it. But then they have a whole thing around serving coffee in their, uh, in their Sudanese tradition and how important it is. And then they have a whole other one around dressing in traditional garb as a celebratory expression of their identity. That so, sounds very cool. Yeah. So there's, there's cool. a, yeah. So you have, uh, it's, right. It's, uh, yeah. Right. What you know, it sounds mm -hmm. like, yep. you know, and what do you feel comfortable about? What is it that you want to capture? So Kelly watched Uncut Gems this past week. That was our movie of the week. And I can't wait to hear what you think about it. But Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Uncut Gems? Uncut Gems uh, came out last year. Uh, it is the, I believe it is the fourth feature film of the Safdie brothers. Now for all y'all who aren't familiar with the Safdie brothers, they are very uh, much in the vein, the um, lineage of New York filmmakers, brash, kinetic style of filmmaking. And the story of uh, Uncut Gems, I'll try to keep it because there's a lot of different plots that go on, but essentially it's about uh, Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler. He works in the Diamond District. Uh, which I can tell you is a little bit of a trip itself if you've ever been there. And Howard can't get out of his own way. And the film is intended to be a comedy, although it is like, as you're watching it, it is. It is? Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, get it, we'll get into all this and stuff like that because people, it, it's interesting. I don't think when A24 released it that they were, it, it's been critically lauded and there's been a different reaction from the fans. Anyway, he, he has a business associate named Damani, or Damani, Damani, played by Lakeith Stan, uh, Stanfield. Damani, thank you. And Howard gets his hands on a rare black opal. And he, at the, Damani brings to him a famous NBA player named Kevin Garnett, who is in town play, uh, as the spot, his Boston Celtics are playing the New York Knicks. This takes and place in 2012. And that's a cameo. That's a cameo. It really is, is Kevin Garnett. Is real, Superstitious real, Kevin Garnett. <laughs> And this was a real playoff series that happened. And that rule was originally, like, it had gone through a few NBA players, and we'll get to the genesis of the film a bit. But uh, Kevin Garnett feels a kinship to this sort of uh, ethereal, super-powered black opal uh, stone, uh, gemstone, and he has to have his hands on it. He plays really well. In the meantime, he makes a trade with uh, Howard Rapp, uh, Adam Sandler's character, for his championship ring, and then Howard pawns the ring off and makes a series of ill-advised bets. Because he's and a gambling then, addict, right? 
because he is yeah. a gambling he he he's not just an addict it's he's, he's an adrenaline junkie he's yeah, a, he's a, yeah. Compulsive well, adrenaline junkie. i mean he's adrenaline a, is like drives the whole movie it's he's fueled an, by adrenaline he's an adrenaline but he also junkie. has a heavy debt on his head that uh is coming yes. from a family member so that helps yes. that's the very go underlying ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, Stu. Yeah. Which family member are we talking yeah, well, about? <laughs> uh, that was well. That was actually the Bogosian character. Where I haven't seen Eric Bogosian in a film in a long time, and I didn't um, used to like him. Yes. But I really liked him in this one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but uh, this, but yeah, it was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's got this. Um, he's out there. He's pawned the ring off, and his goal is to get it back. His goal is to make money. But I, I you know, I don't know if his. <laughs> I don't know if his goal is necessarily always to get it back. Uh, having now watched it, this is the second time I watched it. I think what his goal is, is to actually break free from the uh, constraints of his suburban life. Arno I think he's... too. yeah. Uh, I don't know. And Arno, uh, I, I, I think he, like watching it, he is, he's in a life that he doesn't, like he is self-sabotaging himself the entire movie. And as you're watching it, it's like, why would he do this? A, he probably can't help himself, but B, I think that's the whole point of the plot line with his family. He, uh, Howard is also in the middle of getting a divorce with his wife and trying to keep up with a much younger woman played by, uh, <laughs> played by Julie Fox, who I think you're probably going to see a lot, Julie or Julia Fox. I think you're going to be seeing a lot of, and um, which is great, actually. All the performances are great. This is a bizarre movie because I don't actually like this movie, but boy, I think it's some very confident, competent filmmaking. Well, this I've watched it four thing. times already. Four times already. I'm in, I'm absorbed by this movie. I think it's great. I'm exhausted brothers are... by it. I'm exhausted by it. I think yeah. at the end of that movie, really I was like, oh, it was. Yeah, so I glad don't... that's over. It was a. It, it felt like a, a psychological thriller more than a comedy. <laughs> um, it feels like New York, <laughs> honestly. And, and like, I think these guys really know the terrain. Like, I, I actually think it's. I hate saying the word, but like, I, I really think they did. They conveyed their message and how. And uh, cinematographer Darius Kanji, who criminally underappreciated cinematographer, by the way, uh, did Delicatessen, uh, City of Lost Children, uh, Seven, uh, just to name a few of his very impressive credits and stuff. But uh, they really create uh, that atmosphere, and you are thrust right into. It. It's well, it's based on a true story. Uh, not a true story, but based on true characters. Like true characters. Safety yeah. brothers' uh, father used to work in a jewelry store. And uh, the owner's name was Howard, and uh, you know, lots of shifty things were going on. The whole thing is shifty. Well, I don't think his goal is to make money, his goal is to win. His His goal goal is to hit the big one, he wants to hit the big one and just like cruise, you know. Really, I don't think he could cruise, he couldn't cruise. I mean, he's he's never cruising, he's not, he's he's always hustling. He's a train wreck, train wrecks don't cruise. It's a series of tightrope walks, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's He's totally, yeah. I mean, he's this really, uh, completely narcissistic, completely, totally, and, and an addict in the sense that he will just keep. Push, kicking the can down the road. Like if he's got something of value, he will pawn it so he can make a new bet so he can then get the money so he can then 
but he keeps for and he takes yeah, yeah. No, absolutely right. yeah. no care he takes no care he thinks of nobody except himself it's always upping the ante and i agree with you kelly i think despite what he says it's like if i get this one then i'm gonna quit he's never gonna quit it's not in him to quit and it's just like he'll never stop doing it so what do we think of adam sandler playing howard amazing it's yeah, he's great the teeth implants that oh he used the te fake teeth i think it's and an amazing performance that yeah. was great. I, it's an amazing performance he's incredibly unlikable like yeah. but it's but like let me tell you something having lived in new york for a while i've met howard ratner before like he like there is like those guys in the city and it's just like yeah that that person exists so was it a crime that this movie was pretty much ignored well, I shouldn't say ignored, but I mean, Completely. alongside of the other uh, nominees for Oscars, it was he ignored. He was snubbed. snubbed. Yeah, he was snubbed at the Oscars. He should have gotten at least some nomination or something. I mean, who else was nominated, I guess, that year uh, is always well, the question. Lots of but. people, but it's kind of like it plays to the prudishness of the Academy, right? It's Adam Sandler. Most of his movies are, you know, toilet humor and for kids. So, <laughs> but well, what really, was he quoted saying? He said, if they said, if they don't like this one, the next movie he's going to make is going to be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> this movie got a lot of uh, critical acclaim. Yeah, and it did well, like the Indie Spirit Awards and stuff. Um, you know, and actually, it's and I think it's a two a two four is actually highest grossing film thus far today. So it's it's not been completely snubbed, maybe in the traditional like you know Academy Award uh, films, but like so there's been other uh, milestones that it's hit. Yeah, Mike, to what you said, um, you know, it feels like a like a Cassavetes New York film. You know, kind of like shot with with a lot of. Fair hidden camera on the streets in the wild yeah. Um, and yeah the cinematography really plays well into the chaos of this character's life and you just feel like the anxiety, anxiety. That he's in. that's and, the word and normal or people no, cannot I... handle these situations it's just no, he's no. an insane person <laughs> he is an insane person and i also find it really i'm thinking about how it's just sort of being um it's about being bankrupt on so many levels uh, that just sort of being not having money and needing to pawn other people's things. Okay. That's kind of a definition of being bankrupt, but also just sort of being morally bankrupt and also adding into that, that whole layer of this complete sham world of that we have built that is around perceived value you know like the, the whole gem industry is has had to market itself into these are things of desire that that's that is that wonderful is, point wonderful yeah point. Yes. Yeah, yeah that that like diamonds like they have a role in 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 technology but has these like coveted things that represent love and um, forever and this like that that is something that that the diamond industry had to do like people didn't use diamonds uh, as like the engagement ring is a, is pretty much a 20th century phenomenon and and that now there's people are dying over it uh, over all this wealth and then it's sort of like the stock market like it's all about speculation which is just like one big it's all about gambling too and the whole about saying well this if this person wins by 
gets this many uh, points in a basketball game, then you will then win all this money. It's just this just absolute craziness of this whole layers of systems of craziness. So he's causing all this anxiety and he's working in this industry that really doesn't need to exist at all. <laughs> Especially now that you can make diamonds in a lab and um, they're probably even more pristine and flawless than what you dig out of the out of the earth. And I mean, the whole industry around diamond mining and all of those things, there's a reason why they say blood diamond. It's really, um, I, I think, an outdated industry. You know, it's something of the past. We can do it better now. Right. Uh, so if you want to have diamonds representing your love and fidelity, you can do it differently in, a, in an industry that does not destroy. So... Well, or, yeah. And just the beginning of the film being around this is that, that it's this dangerous place to work. And this guy looks like he's going to get like is really seriously injured. And then the whole and then the whole power dynamic of how you have these low paid miners who are risking their their lives to be able to mine these things so that uh, these business owners can get rich. So rich people can then buy them. And that whole convoluted process. Mm hmm. Yeah. And truly, and truly, you know, like I said, unnecessary in this day and age. But those old Jewish guys got to do something. <laughs> right, Mikey? Speaking of the old Jewish guys, the ones that were played by the uh, brokers when he was pushing the ring around, those guys were great. Just the way they talked and their little subtle uh, Hebrew ways and things. It was just very funny. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a wonderful interview. So interesting. And we love everything that you're doing and love to, to keep up with it. Looking forward to seeing what comes about with Blues and Jazz. We'll see how that goes. Yep. Our festivals, our festivals yes. uh, looking at things a little bit differently this summer, but um, something is going to happen. We're just not something's sure going to happen. Yeah. So. Well, thank well, you thank again. You. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kelly. So do we want to jump into our recommendation for this week? Yes. All right. I thought I'd switch it up with a documentary. So my pick for this week is The Edge of Democracy, which is on Netflix. This is a documentary that was nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars this year. It's by Petra Costa. Petra is a filmmaker that I greatly admire. I love her aesthetic and her approach to her films. They're deeply personal and emotional. Uh, the Edge of Democracy is billed as both a political documentary and a personal memoir. She blends those two together, um, I feel very successfully. Years ago, uh, Erica, you might remember, and maybe Kelly and Stu at film at the Erie Art Museum, we showed, I think it was our first documentary called Elena, uh, which is was an intimate familial, uh, familial documentary that was like in a dream state where she was investigating um, her lost sister and family. And I thought it was a real standout in the form. That film, Elena, is also on Netflix. Uh, highly recommended. But as far as this week's The Edge of Democracy, this film made me very angry. Uh, 
as well as you mean uh, a political movie that made you angry i, I yes. can't believe that <laughs> um but it also uh inspired me to become more involved um in local activism um so it's a film that was already very relevant under the pr trump presidency uh, but now, just a half year later, it's unfortunately even more relevant in today's crises of race, inequality, and corruption. Um, it's a cautionary tale. It's the story of Brazil's uh, recent political history, but I think you guys will find it um, all too familiar, not just in America, but across the world. So, mm -hmm. Petra Costa's The Edge of Democracy. All right. Looking forward to it. That's been our episode. Check out Uncut Gems on Netflix and let us know what you think in the comment section on Facebook. Next week, our guest will be musician and founder of Life Through Music, Corey Cook. Until next time, this was Film Grain. Woohoo!